Welcome to Bitch Talk, booze interviews straight from the heart of San Francisco. I'm Erin. That's Ange. Hi. That's Char. Hello. You can find us at bitchtalkpodcast.com where you can sign up for our monthly e-news. For behind-the-scenes videos and two-minute clips of our interviews, head to our YouTube channel and subscribe. You can find us every other Thursday morning at 9.30 a.m. at bff.fm. And if you like what you hear, rate and subscribe wherever you listen to podcasts. For the love of God, do it. It really helps. Hello. Danny. <laughs> hey. What's up? What's going on? Sorry. <laughs> my uh, lighting's not great in here. I'm in New York. It's dark already. So sorry for the... Yeah, you're 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 big time. You're probably used to having a crew for that kind of thing. I wish I wish here's just this shitty lamp. That's all I got. Man, you didn't get your uh, circle light during the pandemic. Your ring light, exactly. I got one somewhere, but I don't know where it is. Circle I, light. I know that's, that's okay. what I call it. We're starting off real, real. Well. I'm old. I don't care. <laughs> I don't care anymore. Uh, Danny's strong. How the hell are you? Last time we spoke is 2017, and uh, the world was weird, but not as weird as it is now. It's gotten definitely weirder. <laughs> I don't know what to tell you. It's very disturbing out there. Are you disturbed? <laughs> I'm always disturbed. Every every project I work on only disturbs me even more. Although this one is maybe the most disturbing, but. Uh, but, but nonetheless, how are you two? It's so great to see you both. There's been a lot of life that's happened since then. But I do have to say that your interview in 2017 kind of set the bar, at least for me, of like, OK, that's an exceptional interview. People <laughs> people got to live up to that. It really did. And I mean, to be honest, I wasn't even sure if I was going to carry on with Bitch Talk. I was kind of in an in-between phase. Wow. And then, and then after- really sharing a lot now. I know this is intense. I'm like, I'm like so happy I helped or maybe I didn't, but no, I'm just kidding. But I, I, I had just started on bitch talk and I was like, after your interview, I was like, okay, this is fun. I'm going to keep doing this. Thank you. (laughs) It was awesome. I love that. Uh, Well, that's very exciting. I'm very flattered. So, and are you both still in San Francisco? I I'm still in the city and just kind of back and forth. Okay. Yeah. Yeah. She's in LA between lives right now. Oh, LA. We're, We're in LA. What part of town? Seal Beach in a retirement community called nice. Leisure World. Yeah. Perfect for you. <laughs> yeah. I mean, kind of. I'm an old soul. Yeah. Are you the queen bee of Leisure World? You know, I, I, people turn, turn their heads. I'm not going to yeah. lie when I walk yeah. down the street. <laughs> I, I, I can take it further. I know Leisure World. I've been there. How did I? How did I know I, this? Okay, I don't tell even me. Know why. I've been there. I grew up in Manhattan Beach. And so I've been down yep. to Seal Beach and Long Beach. My dad lived in Long Beach for a little while. So, but for whatever reason, I've been to Leisure World. It's very big, if I remember. It just kind of goes on and on and on. Yeah, 10,000 people. It's a huge yeah. community. It's really yeah. nice. It is. Um, but <laughs> yeah, any, anyone that is from this area, they know that like any restaurant with a buffet, you don't go to one in Seal Beach because all the old people just go crazy at the buffets. Yeah. Like my parents actually got uh, reprimanded at Sizzler. <laughs> wow. That is so hardcore gang. <laughs> One too many Texas toasts in the purse. Yeah. You know, it's like you gotta <laughs> to get reprimanded at Sizzler. I don't even know how I would deal with that. I think yeah. it would just be so painful for me. There's another one in, you know, the town over. So it's fine. Okay. All right. Move, so all just good. move on. You just move on. That's how you I just got, it. I got sad about popcorn shrimp when you said that. I don't know why. Um <laughs> 
haven't been to a Sizzlers in a forever. Mm. Danny, like that, uh, seriously, that interview with you um, way back when was actually one of one of our favorites and one of our listeners' favorites. She's up in Canada. Her name's Angela. She loves the interview with you. So that's why we really brought you on was really for Angela up in Canada. All right. So well, that's good. That's good. She's a big fan. Um, so Ange and I just started Dope Sick. And holy shit, you're not kidding about darkness. But also um, filming during a pandemic. Yeah. <laughs> what? How? Yeah. Why? <laughs> yeah, that was unbelievable. And, you know, I don't know if you heard about bubble productions where the entire cast and crew, they'd all be in one resort and the whole production would take place in the resort and no one came in and no one came out and COVID could not penetrate the bubble of that production. <laughs> and our show was the opposite of a bubble production. We had 250 actors from all over the country, flying in and out. We had crew members from uh, all over the region. And it was so complicated, such a logistics nightmare on a non-COVID production. It would have been extremely complicated. But then we had the, the, added, uh, the added challenge of uh, a little thing known as a worldwide pandemic, right? So it yeah. was so difficult and so complicated. We had a wine producer, Jane Bartolome, who basically oversaw the whole thing. And she very much was the hero of the Dope Sick production and, and how she was able to manage how, how she was able to manage it. And, you know, we did great. We had very few positive tests. The few positive tests we did have, it never spread to anyone else. So the masks and shields totally worked. Masks work, people. Yeah. Uh, yeah. And then it was never a zone. We had an a zone means the area around the actors where it would have to shut down. So we had one a zone positive test, and it was a false positive, and we were back up the next day. So of a hundred and four day production, we shut down for one day, and it was a false positive. So it was really, really difficult. Uh, the challenge was especially high for Jane and for myself, because we were both in charge of the company. And so when a positive <laughs> test would come in and it was usually um, uh, in sort of um, departments that weren't coming to set. So it was like the art department or someone in the office. And it was usually someone in their mid twenties. Um, it was maybe out at a bar partying. Right. But it would, you know, these, these positive tests would come in and, and it was, it was, it was like, okay, well, here we go. You know, it's, it's, it's like, you know, quarantine, everyone that was near them. I mean, it was just really intense. The protocols mm -hmm. that we would do when a positive test would come. And these weren't our protocols. These were the industry standard protocols. And I have to say they worked. It never spread. And then uh, very fortunately, no one who, um, whoever did get COVID that was, that was involved with the shoot uh, was ever hospitalized or got even got seriously ill, um, to, to the best of my knowledge. I, it was all the information I got was, yeah, they're fine. They're fine. Um, so, so yeah, it was, but it was, it was really intense. Our director was 79 years old oh. for the first two episodes, 79 oh, wow. years old shooting in a pandemic, no vaccine in sight. I mean, we started right. in October when we started, you know, pre-production. So, uh, um, really, really unlike anything we've ever had to deal with in production. Wow. That is crazy. Well, yeah. congratulations. Maybe we should make you governor of Florida. I think you could do yeah. a better job than, uh, <laughs> than that guy. It seems like you can handle, handle a lot. Yeah. <laughs> the COVID king himself. Um, I mean, really? Yeah. I, I, I don't even know how to deal with, um, uh, people that were, um, 
telling people not to wear masks in a pandemic. It, it's so counterintuitive um, uh, to to just everything that you're supposed to do in a, in a pandemic. And it's all and, uh, it's all about freedom, though. Yeah, yeah, mm-hmm. freedom to make people sick. Mm-hmm. Um, but anyways, I, it's way too political for me. This is way too partisan. I'm a nonpartisan individual here. I'm very. Uh, <laughs> Very, are you middle of the road? Just I'm middle of the road. I'm uh, very middle of the road. Just both, yeah. you know, everyone's got some arguments, but uh, no, I'm sure. not. But I, I, you know, I'm definitely um, on this particular project. Uh, not really because um, it's not a partisan issue at all. It's it's not a it's not a, a blue state or a red state. It's an all state issue uh, dealing with the opioid crisis. And then uh, part of where the show goes in later episodes is it goes to the highest levels of the U.S. government. Uh, and again, it's not partisan. It's pure uh, a revolving door influence peddling. Um, we've got uh, one of the biggest shills for Purdue in Congress during our show is a Democrat. Mm-hmm. Um, literally, it's it's the bipartisan uh, swamp uh, story. Uh, and and it's not it, it it's not as if that's what the whole show's about, but it does go there. Um, And it's and the sort of the moneyed influence on government um, uh, transcends political parties. It's it's, it's all parties. Mm -hmm. And this is one of the worst examples of it is is the opioid crisis and how Purdue Pharma was able to maneuver their way through the U.S. government to such a staggering extent, um, just never stopping, never slowing down, no matter what was in their way, what investigation what division of the U.S. government was coming for them or trying to regulate them, they would just maneuver right through it uh, with their money. And it's it's um, an unbelievable story. Yeah, and one thing that really messes me up about it when, when you think about it on a macro level is that, you know, these street-level drug dealers are going to jail every day. And meanwhile, these the real criminals up top just, just get to get to get go away unscathed like you you know what they're doing these these are all facts it's not hearsay yet they're they're you know wash wash their hands of all of their crimes that i mean how do you even how do you even turn back on the damage that they've done uh well there are paths forward and that is uh you know there are lives that we'll never have back and families that have been destroyed Mm -hmm. um and people's lives that have been ruined um but um, and, and that's one of the reasons why we did the show was to document the crimes of Purdue Pharma for the American public so they can have a visceral understanding of what this company actually did. Because if you have a understand if you've heard of the opioid crisis, I'm sure and <laughs> you've probably heard that, you know, they lied about it being more addictive or less addictive than it really was. You have just sort of a basic understanding that they did something wrong. Um, and that there there have been repercussions for them for for this wrongdoing. But when you actually see the level of deception uh, that they went through, the lying, the manipulation, um, it is it is the false evidence they put forward to doctors. It is shocking and staggering and disturbing to promote and convince doctors by creating fake studies and fake blood charts that an addictive drug was not addictive. 
And because of that, because of that deception, and by the way, they've pled guilty to everything we show in the show, right? So, and because of this deception, it was so staggering. That's that's how the opioid crisis happened. That's why we have the opioid crisis because of the the uh, the level of just criminal uh, fraud that this company went to um, to 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 sell this drug. Um, it's 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 a story that is unlike anything I've ever encountered personally. And did this book just fall into your hands or did you find it and you read it and you're like, we need to make a series out of this? Yeah, it's, it's sort of one of those weird Hollywood stories where I actually had come up with the show and sold the show to a studio before I even knew the book existed. Oh. Well, I sold this show to 20th, which is a studio in the Disney empire. <laughs> and Fox 21, another studio in the Disney empire who didn't know about my show, went and bought this book in a bidding war. So I, I found out that this had happened reading it on Deadline Hollywood. I literally went on Deadline and I, and I saw, oh, wow, look at that. My, uh, my sister studio just created a competing project against me. Wow. Well, very interesting. Um, <laughs> So what they did was they asked if I would team up with with uh, Dope Sick and Beth Macy and Warren Littlefield, who's the producer of it. Mm-hmm. And I went and um, read the book and I loved the book and uh, met with Beth. And I thought she was incredible. And Warren Littlefield's this, this iconic right. producer. Mm-hmm. So I agreed to team up. And then Beth was a, a major part of the team. Wow. That's how that's how we, we went. Through <laughs> yeah, it's sort of a strange Hollywood story, but not. These these things happen. It's it's not crazy unusual. Yeah, but not common either. But for both for both projects to kind of mesh the way they did and you guys to get along and say, yeah, let's do this together. That's I mean, I'm sure that doesn't happen all the time. Yeah, it was also Beth was great. She's so cool. And I love the idea of not just having an expert um, involved in the process, but an expert who lived in Virginia in Roanoke. I just thought that could really be invaluable. But I it, I also agreed to team up because I really liked her. Mm. Uh, I didn't like her. I just wouldn't have done it. Well, and you're lovable too, Danny. I'm sure. Uh, I'm sure <laughs> it was reciprocal. Uh, really? <laughs> okay. You say so. <laughs> and, well, yeah, go well, ahead, Ange. Well, just as a professional writer, uh, you know, I, I thought during the pandemic, it's sort of, it sort of helps to be able to escape the reality of the moment. Um, but I remember, you know, it's a, as a coping mechanism, but I remember you telling us that you like to write in public spaces. You're very, you like to be very social with your art. So, so how did creating and writing, how did you, you cope with that during, during a pandemic and find yeah. ways around that? Well, that was out the window. A buddy of mine asked <laughs> me the same question. He said, so were you able to write not being in, in coffee shops? And my answer was, yeah, you know, I just did it. <laughs> it was, it, it was just, well, you just do what you got to do. And I had to get the scripts written and we did our writer's room uh, virtually. So we would do these sessions and there was, I kept the writer's room very small. So there was only five of us total. Um, and, um, and then the actual writing process, I just, for the first time I did it in, in, you know, where I was, where I was staying. Hmm. And I wanted to ask about your killer cast. And by the way, when Mayor Winningham shows up at the dinner table, I got real excited. <laughs> I love, I love her. 
so funny. My uh, wine producer that I was talking about, Jane, she's the same way. She's an <laughs> Mayor Winningham fan. And by the way, Mayor's incredible. And she's on Broadway right now in a show called Girl from North Country. So if you can make it out to New York, you oh. can see her on stage right now. And she's incredible in the show. It's a very, very beautiful show. But um, but yeah, Mayor's, Mayor's amazing. And, and she does have this this fan base of people that are very uh, in, in awe of, of what she does. Uh, the cast was, I've had so many great casts in my projects, but this one is, uh, I, I don't even know how to compare to it. It's just this murderer's row of most <laughs> talented people. Uh, yeah, Michael Keaton, Rosario Dawson, Caitlin mm-hmm. Keaver, Peter Sarsgaard, Will Poulter, Michael Stuhlberg, like Pippa or Philip yeah. Asu from, from Hamilton. Oh, yeah. And yeah. it goes on and on and on. Uh, I know I'm forgetting a zillion people, but um, everyone uh, came with their A game. They were so excited to be a part of it. I think many of them hadn't worked yet during the pandemic. So yeah. they were nervous. They were thrilled to be working mm-hmm. again too. So it was this collective group effort in our crew. We shot in Virginia where the story took place. And so we had people on the crew that had experienced these issues either firsthand or with loved ones, had lost loved ones. And so there was a great deal of passion around the project, this collective group effort. And I remember um, we shot a scene, I think it was day two, and some people were talking about Oxycontin and it wasn't a particularly dramatic scene. They were just discussing the drug Oxycontin and there was this issue. And then I looked and I saw three different members of the crew crying, mm-hmm. just hearing the name of the drug for the first time and, and while we were shooting. And it was, it was just this, this powerful moment for me of this is real. This happened. This happened here. And we have to get this story out here so that people can understand uh, how this all really went down. Yeah, well, speaking of cast, um, I'd hate to beat a dead horse, but the last time we talked to you, <laughs> you did suggest maybe there'd be a place for us on Empire. Yeah, that yeah. just you didn't know, happen. Maybe the email went to spam. I don't know. So is, is that why is that why that's such a beloved podcast and had nothing to do with the interview? <laughs> it was just I I I promised you parks and you were like, well, okay, we I thought we were gonna make promised. it promised. I'll I'll play the devil's advocate. Yeah, well, I think we put it out there and then we just were like, you know, come on. No, he suggested (laughs) it. And I think you should trust your gut. And I know you're probably working on five new projects right now. Just don't forget about us. That's all I'm saying. I mean, it's how did we not get you on Empire? I can think of two people that would be more hip hop legendary than the two. I mean, you don't even know. You don't even know what we do. You don't (laughs) even know what we've done. Yeah. Yeah. I could have been uh, a rapper in a past life. Just say you could have been, uh, you know, we didn't get to finish that show. We we literally had two more episodes to shoot and the pandemic shut it down. What a drag. A hundred and four. I think it was one hundred and four episodes. I can't even remember at this point. Some are one hundred and six. It was one or the other. And we we I think actually it was supposed to be one hundred six, but it ended up one hundred four because of the pandemic. And so we didn't get to shoot our season finale. So we had to do this weird weird ending of of the the third to last episode of the season we turned into the end of the show it was so strange and just a sad way to go out after all that work over the years um but then and the the ending that we'd come up with was was i thought quite powerful and, and and moving and just a really badass way to finish finish that that it was a pretty groundbreaking show for uh yeah just uh, uh, it, it meant a lot to a lot of people. So yeah, it was, it was really unfortunate that we had to end it the way we did. 
And I don't know if we asked this the last time we chatted, uh, but are, do you love, well, what do you love more do, acting, directing, or is it just both the same on the same level? Like, um, Oh, I, I don't, it's, I, I don't really think about it in those terms. I'm usually just whatever I'm doing that day is what I'm focused on. Mm. You know, I just view myself. I'm a, I'm an artistic person. I hope that doesn't sound pretentious, but I like to do a lot of different things in the arts and, um, and I work on all different kinds of projects and I do different jobs on those projects. Um, sometimes I do multi jobs on one project. Sometimes it's just one job on the project. So whatever, 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 I'm doing that day is, is just my focus. Um, I will say that I don't pursue acting work the way I used to, as soon as my writing career took over. Okay. So I'm not, I'm not pounding the pavement trying to get acting jobs anymore. And the only time I act now is when someone thinks of me for something and comes to me. So it's not something that I'm personally pursuing mm -hmm. and I never write myself into anything that I do. I, uh, I will say that I do enjoy the writer schedule the best mm. because because it's, I wake <laughs> up and I have some tea and then I find, I have some breakfast and I find my way to a coffee shop and I return emails and then write for about four hours and then make some phone calls. And that's the day. And it's very productive. Those four hours of writing, I get a lot done. Um, but it's it's casual. It's relaxed. Uh, when I'm on set directing or producing, it is the opposite of casual <laughs> relaxed. It is the, there's 12 hours, 11 hours, these many scenes. And it's literally like there's a giant invisible hourglass of sand falling <laughs> all day in which I'm watching the sand fall, trying to make sure that, that we, we were going to get everything we need to get that day. Because if I'm producing the show, it only falls on me. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. yeah. Literally, literally. I remember one time I was directing a show that I was also in charge of and, and we got really screwed up on the schedule and we were behind several hours and it technically wasn't my fault. What happened? It was just something random happened that set us behind all these hours. But the cinematographer said, um, don't worry about it. It's not on you. You won't get in trouble. And I, and I said, it's not on me. I'm the one in the editing room that won't have this footage. And when the episode's not good, I am the creator, director, writer of this episode. There's no one else they're going to blame but me. You yeah. know? So it's, it's all the pressure of delivering on shows that I'm in charge of or movies that I'm in charge of. Like that, that's, that's all on me. So it's, it's just, a, and, and there's this moment of you're turning cuts in, you're releasing things that are getting seen and there's feedback. Uh, and all of that has tons of pressure to it, as opposed to I'm at the coffee shop and I'm writing <laughs> and, and, you know, and I'll finish when I finish. Oh, I need to take a phone call. Okay. <laughs> so, so I do it. And, and, you know, releasing Dope Sick has been those first, you know, the week before it comes out and the first two weeks after those three weeks is a level of stress that is my least favorite part of everything mm. that I do for a living. It's just <laughs> so intense and reviews are coming in and then you're seeing numbers on the, on how many people are watching it. And in this case, it's sort of weird because you don't really get numbers because it's streaming. Right. Okay. But mm. you kind of hear some things, right. And then there's social, there's social media feedback. So yep. it's literally this giant moment of judgment where you're waiting to find out. So, okay, is this going to be a total failure and I'm never going to work again? Or is it going to come out well, or is it going to come out great? And, and it's going to be very successful. 
And so all of that is, is very painful to, mm-hmm. to uh, live through those three weeks. And I'm, and I'm pretty much over it now. Um, and, and the show is quite successful and we got great reviews. I mean, everything's great now. And so I literally, the relaxation I feel uh, is staggering compared to how I felt a week ago where I was like, okay, is, this is the most stressful moment of my existence of the last two years. Uh, <laughs> this, so, this moment was? <laughs> yeah, well, yeah, this interview actually. No, oh. it's, uh, it's, I knew, sort of yeah. like building up to this moment of, of the release right. of it and stuff, but, but we've gotten through it and, and people love it. It's really exciting. Um, so I feel it's great to come to you with this interview being like, oh my God, we did it. It's okay. <laughs> It's all, everything's going to be all right. Yeah. So we timed it right. Thank God we didn't interview yeah, you last week. <laughs> yeah. It's also, you know, and there's this whole two where I'm trying to stay focused and publicize it. And you're in this kind of hustle mode, which I'm still in that. Mm-hmm. Uh, but it's, it's just, it's much nicer to be in the hustle mode when you know that the people are loving the show and it's, it's getting a, a great reception. Yeah. We'd rather interview you when you're unfocused. Just let it all out. We don't, <laughs> all, everyone else interviews the focused. We want the unfocused. Yeah, you anyway. Under the bed. Shivering. Shivering with tears in my eyes, you know, looking at photos of me performing in high school. thinking, Why was it? I was so much better then. I was the emptying cabaret. What happened? Well, well, I did. I, I read an interview that you did and you were talking about writing and how it took six years for you to sell your first script. And, and you said you asked yourself, would I do this for the rest of my life if I got nothing in return? Mm-hmm. And I thought that would be a great title for the Bitch Talk autobiography. So <laughs> I feel like I really felt that sentiment. And and, and the go. answer is yes to Bitch Talk. Yes. Well. So there yeah, you yeah. go. I love it. I love it. That was it was actually seven years I was writing seven. before. Wow. And that, that line you said, I love it because it's basically the theme of the movie Rebel in the Rye that I did the interview with you for. Literally the whole movie was based around um, proving that line of dialogue. Um, <laughs> so so you kind of nailed exactly what, what that whole project was going for was literally that line of dialogue. You're welcome. There you go. <laughs> you can use it. You can use, it. Crushing it. you can use your own line that I read back. There to you me. go. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, welcome to my world. You know? <laughs> uh, we're at time, if you can believe it, Danny. So if you have any questions for us, like last time, feel free. <laughs> uh, how's it been going the last few years? What's how's the show been going? I mean, is, is it is it going well? Are you still having fun? Oh, yeah. We're past way past 600 episodes. Uh, Somehow we had a kind of a live event for our 500th last year. Um, And the pandemic helped, actually, which was weird. We thought that people weren't going to be listening to podcasts anymore because they weren't they weren't commuting. They weren't. But everything bumped up during the pandemic. So, you know, it was one good thing, I guess, yeah. <laughs> that came out of it. Well, I'm, ha- I'm so happy for you. I mean, that's Thank really you. exciting. So what, what are we thinking? Another uh, 400 to get you to a thousand episodes? At least. Yeah. <laughs> oh, yeah. I mean, why, why stop? You know, why I feel why like stop now. Well, this has actually kept me going through the pandemic because when, like you said, we couldn't be social. We couldn't do anything yet. It allowed us a way to still be inspired, hear new stories, you know, be engaged, you know, in, in something other than our own demise. Yeah, (laughs) yeah. and then you didn't demise. You're still here doing bitch talk. We're still Still here. here. And I was going to say, since we I'm sorry, since we've seen you, we've been to Sundance in person and in the last year, not Um, we did South by Southwest. So and we do a lot of the film festivals here in the Bay Area. But those were kind of the two biggest that were like, wow, okay, 
Here so we are. The biggest in the country. <laughs> right. Like that's yeah. the biggest festivals in the U.S. So congratulations. You'll have yeah. to go back again when um, I know when, they, when they're back up and running. Yeah. 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 Hopefully you'll have a project at one of them and we can see you in person again. So. How perfect would that be? I yeah. know. Yeah. So how did this interview compare to the one four years ago? Was I in the time zone at least? Because you put a lot of pressure on me. <laughs> I was like, oh, my God, it's not going to be as good as the last one. This one feels more relaxed because the last one we didn't I didn't know. I knew things about you when I read things, but I didn't know you and who you are, I guess. But Uh you have a lot. You had a lot of fans out there, Danny. Oh, my goodness. Well, tell them I said hello. (laughs) (laughs) There's probably eight. Right. So tell them. No, more than that. Um, But the other thing is, too, I did not know. So I started watching Mad Men late. And after we interviewed, I had no idea, like your presence on that show for what? How many episodes was pretty Uh big? five or six, four or five, somewhere in there. It was, yeah. over, I think maybe it was six, but it was, it was uh, over two seasons. Yeah. Four in one season and one in another season. What a show to be a part of. I mean, one of the Jesus greatest Christ. shows of all time. Yes. I, yeah. Phenomenal. I mean, I was um, at the point that I did it, I quit acting. Um, and really? I for two years, by the way, the happiest two years of my life. I was so <laughs> joyous not to be auditioning for anything and getting rejected <laughs> over and over again. And then, but I had this manager who still wanted me to do it. He was my acting manager. And he's like, I'm not giving up on you, Danny Strong. I'm like, well, that makes one of us, you know, <laughs> right. so he kept bringing me auditions that I wouldn't do. And then he called and said, well, what about, I got you an audition for Mad Men. Will you at least read for that? And I said, oh, well, that's my favorite show. So yes. <laughs> I will. And then I got the part. And that actually is what started me acting again. Holy. Because these offers I've been getting post Mad Men came from being on Mad Men. Right. Yeah. And you were very close to John Hamm. So that's. Yeah. Yeah. It was tough for him because he's like, I don't <laughs> working with this actor who's better looking than me. Right. Correct. He didn't want me anywhere near him. And Correct. It was, you know, it was painful, but I understood for John. So yeah, we all get it. He heard you were five foot two and he was like, shit, I'm screwed. Yeah. 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 It's over. I, it's so funny. <laughs> he they bring that up as a Brian Koppelman when he was interviewing this director, Tom McCarthy, Tom McCarthy oh. said, um, I was five foot two in high school and then I grew a foot. And then Brian Koppelman went, oh, so you went from Danny Strong to John Hamm. <laughs> Before and after. Perfect. He literally said that. And then Tom McCarthy, who's a friend of mine, started defending me. He's like, why you got to say that about Danny? Oh. I said, I thought it was hilarious. Well, I, I did. If we have another second, I did want to ask you because you've yeah. won so many awards. I mean, you won the Emmy for Outstanding Writing for a miniseries slash movie for um, Game Change. And, I, uh, you know, we've interviewed a lot of people that have been on, on that Emmy stage or, uh, you know, won an Oscar. But I, I always forget to ask, like, what was that moment like? Do you just black out? Or I mean, no. So I was I was terrified the microphone was going to be too high (laughs) and then I wouldn't be able to reach the microphone. And I'm like, God, I just if I win, I just hope the microphone isn't too high. And then I get up there and sure enough, the microphone was like in my nose. And so the whole time I'm like, I look like such an asshole. The microphone's in my nose. You did not give the speech and then get off the stage quickly. and, uh, you know, and I, I had this thing in my head of don't go too long. 
don't make sure they don't play the band to play. Yeah. Who cares? But for some reason it was, it was, it was, I really needed to come <laughs> under time. So, uh, and then I did come under time. So I thought it was a fairly successful uh, Emmy speech. And then when I got off stage and I'm like, okay, so the mic was too high. And then I had this moment of like, holy shit, I just won an Emmy. Oh my God. <laughs> so it took a beat. I had to get through the speech first before I could really uh, enjoy that. Mm -hmm. Are are you allowed to talk about any projects that are coming up for you, or are you just chilling out for a minute? Well, I got some things, but I've, I've I haven't been talking about them because they're all in in very early stages. Okay, fine. Yeah. <laughs> then so, we'll end on that note. Congrats, oh shit! You, on your oh. amazing success, I'm so excited Thanks. for the both of you. Thank, Thank you, Danny. For the next uh, the next time I get to come chat with you. I yes. yeah, I hope it's sometime in the near future. Yeah, I'd love when the, that. When the world's a little more. I don't know. Calm. Uh, Danny Strong, a pleasure. Love having you on Bitch Talk. Thank you Thank so you much. Thank you so much. Bye, you too. Take Bye. care. If you like what you hear, rate and subscribe wherever you listen to podcasts. For more information about us, you can head to bitchtalkpodcast.com. This podcast is created, hosted, and executive produced by Aaron Lim. My co-host is Angela Tabora, a.k.a. Captain Party. The show's edited by producer Shar. We're powered by GoTo Productions. Mm -hmm.